Genesis 1 and Young Earth Creationism, uh, responding to another article that was responding to my original article about the eight common uh, arguments put forth by Young Earth Creationists and why I find them so unconvincing and not very compelling at all. So in this case, <clears throat> I'm going to respond to a gentleman by the name of Turretin Fan, who, by the way, I I really respect this guy. I really like Turretin Fan. He does a lot of uh, great thinking in and around the, the Reformed uh, theological world. Um, so I, I, I like Turretin Fan again, just like my previous response to Steve Schramm. Uh, this has nothing to do with him personally. I, I respect him. He's a, he's, a good, uh, he's a good guy and a clear thinker. Uh, I appreciate a lot of his uh, discussions and things he's done on, on Molinism, which I also have done a lot about. So this has nothing to do, I'm not trying to say Turretin Fan is stupid or you know anything like that. Uh, I just want to respond to um, some of his statements that he made in this previous article. Remember, this is a backlog that I'm trying to get some new content out. So this was actually, I believe, about a year ago or so uh, that he was responding to my original article uh, and people have been requesting to get some uh, audio and video uh, uh, responses to these. So I wanted to get uh, this out. So uh, Turretin Fan has really taken up the mantle for Young Earth Creationists of trying to respond to some of my works on Genesis. Uh, dealing with Genesis 1 and, and uh, how to best understand it within its historical context, within its historical, literary, and theological genre, and all that kind of stuff. Well, well, he doesn't respond to my actual thesis paper. Remember the entire series that I went through on a historical, grammatical, and polemical reading of Genesis 1? Well, he doesn't respond to any of that. And he doesn't go through any of my other work dealing with my positive case uh, for, for that position. Um, he does respond to my previous article, which is now also uh, in audio and video format as well. Um, <clears throat> and and we're, we're in, that, in that, I tried to give rejoinders to these common young earth creationist arguments or statements or, or things that they use in defense of uh, really a literal day view, a 24-hour day view of Genesis 1. Now, again, I have a great deal of respect for Turretin Fan, so, so please don't read any of the comments here as any type of level or hostility or animosity or anything like that. But in this instance, his comments were often assumptive, somewhat superficial, or just seemed to be like a restatement of the exact objection that I was responding to and didn't really deal with any of my comments. Like I did again with Steve Schramm, uh, who gave response to these articles, I'm gonna just give the list of the objections or, the, or really a list of the uh, arguments or statements that are, are given by, by uh, Young Earth Creationists and those who affirm a 24-hour view day of Genesis and then go into some of my rejoinders of their comments on it. So first, the first kind of statement given by uh, Young Earth Creationists is that old Earth Creationists are intimidated by secular scientists and so they reject what they know the text says, right? This is kind of the, the Young Earth Creationism of faith is pretending to know what you know ain't so or something like that. Well, Turton's first comment is simply that peer pressure is real. The desire to fit in is a real thing. And so he claims it is one of the reasons that people are often tempted by old earth creationist models. Not only is this simply an assertion, but the psychology of belief is so far outside of the realm of expertise of Turretin Fan or myself, 
and of most who comment on these debates, that I don't really see any utility to it. Could we not also just arbitrarily say that the desire to fit into the church culture that people are raised in also drives people to believe in young earth creationist views? The genetic fallacy is a fallacy for a reason, but we can say more beyond pointing out the kind of infantile nature of such objections as logically fallacious. The main issue, besides its blatant logically fallacious nature of the genetic fallacy, is that it ignores the reasons that people actually give for accepting old earth creationism. And here I think he thinks I'm an old earth creationist, even though I'm not. So I'm just going to, I'm going to say reasons people give for accepting positions that aren't young earth creationism or literal day views, because uh, again, I'm not an old earth creationist. The, the reasons that we give are that we've become convinced of our view by sound hermeneutics and exegesis and, and arguments and evidence, or at least we're convinced that it's the consensus of, uh, you know, of, of uh, scholarship on this, or we found <clears throat> reasons for other views really unsatisfactory, or in some cases, at least for the old earth creationists who, who still hold kind of a, a science-y type of view, uh, they believe that, that science actually has demonstrated some of these some of these things. So this is the same reason many will, will believe in countless scientific views of astronomy and cosmology and physics. I mean, I wonder if Churchenfan has done an in-depth study for himself of the chemical composition of red dwarf stars, the Kuiper belt, heliocentrism, anatomy, and so forth, or if he takes a kind of reasonable belief in the consensus view of science. As, as long as we do not hold the scientific community to a kind of infallibility, I just see no problem with holding reasonable beliefs and a tentative conclusion of scientists just like we do in numerous other fields that we're not specialists ourselves in. I mean, I believe that our sun is a gas giant or a gas ball that's on fire. Have I done any study on the chemical composition? Have I verified the results? No, I, I believe it because that's what science has generally found and I see no reason to think that they're lying about it. Um, so uh, for, for many, they simply find young earth, creationist, earth creationism and their handling of the, of the Genesis text to just be poor handlings of the text. And then they have major doubts about the quote unquote science or creation science done by creationists. Often you don't need to even be a good, well-trained scientist to see some of the major problems with it. And they see a general consensus among geologists, cosmologists, physicists, people in all these broad uh, disciplines that span ideological lines. You have naturalists, theists, Christians, you know, agnostics, all these people broadly agreeing with the, these findings. This is not some intimidation by secular science where they're believing what they don't actually believe because they're bullied into it by psychological peer pressure. Again, I, I have no idea what that term even means to even call it secular science also, but rather is how we form and hold reasonable beliefs about a whole host of areas all the time, and we do it when in a rational way. Turretenfan then criticized my statement that we should ask where the evidence is pointing because <clears throat> he claims that, quote, natural science can only provide a natural explanation, end quote. That's mostly true. In some kinds of experimental science, though, only natural explanations can be provided. This is simply not the case, however, in historical or theoret theoretical science. And in fact, ironically, creationists that Turretenfan would probably like and apologists will often make this very argument. 
arguments like the cosmological argument, fine-tuning, specified complexity, and a whole host of others will argue that the evidence given to us by science are best explained by some non-natural or intentional intelligent causal or divine agent. Turton fan will likely respond that those are philosophy and that is all well and good since I never claimed that we will discover God in a vat or a test tube, but rather what the evidence is best explained by. Turton fan says, quote, scientists can be baffled and unable to provide an explanation, but science cannot say that was supernatural, end quote. I'd simply say that that's just not true, and many scientists have made just such statements. From the earliest days of science, the founders believed that their findings pointed to a creator god, and many scientists today believe the same. Here, Turgeon fan would need to do much more spade work on the kind of explanations that are available to the scientists and philosophers of science today. Now, is it the case that we don't have any empirical, direct scientific evidence? We don't, we don't, know what, <clears throat> we don't have a test tube that has God in it? Well, sure, but that doesn't mean we can't make inferences to the best explanation from science. Finally, Turretin fan seems to argue that we should be skeptical of science because of what he calls the quote-unquote failures of science, such as the view of a stationary sun. Now, <clears throat> hopefully I can make the following statement without being accused of sympathy for atheism or not, you know, every, again, not everything atheists say is false. But we know that certain scientific theories held by previous generations were false precisely because of advances in science. So while scientific theories are always provisional and open to reinterpretation, overhaul, or just complete abandonment in some cases, it seems wildly ironic to attempt to jettison the very discipline used to gather the information which overthrew the false notions. Such a view of science proposed by Turton fans simply seems inadequate to me. Science was also wrong for a long time about what caused diseases. So does Turton Fan think we should reject or be highly skeptical of germ theory and medicine because we were wrong in the past about that discipline? Uh, even though the, the advances of science, uh, the advances in the science of medicine is precisely what overthrew those false notions and came up with better ones, should we doubt it because it had previous false conclusions? I mean, that's just a weird position to take. Okay, the second uh, uh, kind of polemic used by young earth creationists and, and people who believe the Genesis teaches a 24-hour literal day view is that if you just take the plain meaning of the text, it clearly means six literal sorrowful days. Okay, again, I gave my response to this and Turretin fan responded. And in this section, what I did was I gave a list of problems with a literal diachronic Diachronic just means through time, a kind of literal progression through time, reading that, that type of reading of Genesis 1 that have led many of us to reject such a view. And this does not include my other work giving positive reasons and evidences for holding a literary polemical temple text view. Turton fan goes through these, but honestly gives some, some of the same flawed responses common to young earth creationist polemics that I've addressed elsewhere. Let's look through these in order. First, the pro there's the problem of the light before the sun. Turton fan gives ex biblical examples where God's glory illuminates the new Jerusalem, and he gives Revelation 21-23, and Moses' face radiates after illumination by the glory of God. The main problem here is that Genesis 1 says that God created the light. He speaks it into existence. So not only does Turton fan give an option, God's own glory, that doesn't fit the account since God didn't create himself, he also ignores the major problem that the criticism is getting at, and that is that day four tells us 
expressly that the sun and the moon are made specifically for the purpose of separating the day from the light and marking out days from nights. Their function just was to make a 24-hour day. So if that was the purpose and the function of the sun and the moon to mark out 24 hours of days by their, by their light, by daytime and nighttime, then what light was created in day one to do the exact same task? Turton fan may say, well, this is trivial and absurd objection, but it seems only because he completely misses the mark on what the objection actually is. This leads to the second problem. Why create this unknown light on day one with the same functions of the luminaries on day four, call it good like God does the rest of his creation, only to scrap it three days later and replace it with the sun and the moon on day four? Turton fan says that this is an impertinent question because it asks why, a why question of God. Why would God do that? Well, I doubt Turton fan would give such a response to other why questions. Why does God love the elect in Christ? Why does he call a people to himself? Why does he judge people in hell, etc.? Asking a why question is not, a, is not de facto impertinent. He then tries to answer it, but his answer is weird. He says, the sun was created to rule the day while the moon was created to rule the night. In essence, these could be viewed as delegations of God's own power, end quote. Now, I would debate the final clause depending on what he means by it. If he means as evidence of his power, then sure. But as delegates seem to jump headlong back into the very pagan notions of a deified cosmos that I think Genesis 1 is precisely rebutting. But ultimately, his answer isn't an answer to the question. Saying that the sun and the moon are to rule over the, the day and the night doesn't answer the question about creating some other light that's abstract or something on day one with the exact same function of the sun and the moon, call that thing good, like he does the rest of creation, and then to scrap it th three days later and start with something else. So. Turton's fan about that the sun and the moon are meant to rule over the day and the night just isn't an answer for the challenge. Turton fan then says that he can have days without having a tool to measure them, like how we can have distance without actually having a ruler. Well, I mean, yes and no. We, do, we don't have an inch without having a standard inch. Such a distance exists in virtue of the standard measurement of an inch existing as an inch. Turretin fan here is forgetting, or isn't aware of, or for some unstated reason rejects, the functional ontology of the ancient Near Eastern people. We have a 24-hour day because we have a solar day. We in the modern era know that the Earth rotates on its axis <clears throat> at a specific speed and makes a full rotation approximately every 24 hours. The ancients didn't know that. This text would have been completely undiscernible to them if not for the sun and the moon to mark out days and nights. We also have to remember the text of the Bible in God's providence, while written for the benefit of the modern church, is not written to the modern church. We're reading ancient mail. There was no concept of rotation of the earth and or its orbit around the sun. It stood still and fixed, unmovable, with celestial bodies orbiting us in the firmament. To imagine that the author of Genesis, who Turretin Fan and I both likely agree is either Moses or part of the Moses circle with light redactional activity, to, to, to imagine that the author of Genesis meant the axial rotation of the earth just 
strains at credulity for what an ancient author could have even imagined by it. And if Turton fan wants to, to ever make the perspicuity objection, it, that is that, that all scripture has to be clear or, well, it doesn't matter if Moses meant it, it only matters that God meant it that way. It would seem utterly bizarre to argue that the text is perspicuous to us today, but it wouldn't have been perspicuous to the foreign and original author who was writing it. That is, it's perspicuous to us today that it means axial rotation, but in the time that it was composed, that would have been opaque to them. They wouldn't have understood the plain meaning then. So perspicuity in that sense, if you use it that way, just becomes a wax nose because it's clear to us, but it wasn't, wouldn't have been clear to them. Okay, finally, there's the issue of the order of the plants, uh, the creation of the plants and man between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Here, Turgeon fan seems to adopt the common young earth creationist view that Genesis 2 is referring specifically to cultivated plants, or at least the plants in the garden. He seems to think that the plants of earth grew before man in Genesis 1, and then that we should read Genesis 2 that there was no cultivated plants. So God watered the earth with a mist before creating man. Turton fan doesn't really develop this, but just quotes the surrounding verses as if simply stating them resolves the problem, like none of us who make an objection has ever read those verses. There are two problems with this. First, the term for field here simply doesn't exclusively refer to cultivated or agricultural plants. The same term is used of the home of the animals, the sade, and, and can mean a cultivated field, such as Hosea 12 12, but typically, this doesn't mean something like a farm or a cultivated field like we would think of, but rather something like domestic or owned fields which bear food, such as Deuteronomy 32.13. However, the term is often used for the home of wild beasts, right? You can see this in Psalm 8.8, Psalm 50.11, Psalm 80.14, 104.11, and Isaiah 56.9, Joel 2.22, and so forth or even as the opposite land to that of a mountain, so a low land, such as Jeremiah 18.4, as, or as land as opposed to sea, such as in Psalm 96.12. The idea most common to this is that it's just a wide open field, sometimes even with the notion that it's not frequented by people, which is used in Genesis in 24.63 and 24.65. A simple word study of the term would suffice to show that one simply cannot assume that because it says field or because it uses that term, that it must mean domesticated and cultivated ground. It can mean that, sure, but there's nothing in the context that makes it necessarily mean that or even probably mean that. This leads to the second response. Notice that God does not create the garden, that is the only place we could competently call a specifically cultivated land in Genesis 1 and 2, until 2.8, after he creates man in 2.7. So the plants of the field being watered in 2.5 likely could not have been the plant, the cultivated plants that were created in the garden in 2.8. So we have, again, textual evidence showing that this is probably not just speaking about cultivated plants. So Turretin fans' response here is just not only undeveloped, but it's just inadequate to, to the task of responding to what my arguments were. 
The third claim made by younger creationists and those who hold to a 24-hour day view of Genesis is that Genesis is literal history and not allegory. Here, I argue that this typical statement is, is just a false dichotomy, and, I, and I've showed elsewhere that, there, that it's just a false dichotomy to go from literal history to allegory. There's like a hundred things in between there, uh, and you can talk about literal history in allegorical ways. So it, it, it's just a really bad dichotomy that a lot of people use. It's just bad hermeneutics. I'm somewhat confused, to be honest, by Turretin fan's response, since he seems to agree with me that that's a false dichotomy. He gives several examples where historical accounts can be told in various genres and for different purposes. I'd agree with this. But here, Turretin fan likely grants more than he means to. The issue here is that the typical young earth creationist presupposes that the genre of literature just is a diachronic or historical narrative. If Turretin fan is conceding that it's not a historical narrative, then he would then need to argue exactly why we should read it as a literal diachronic historical narrative. If he's not conceding that, then he would need to argue why we should read it as a literal historical narrative. So as of right now, I'll leave Turretin fan to update his own response to this because I'm simply honestly just not clear what point he's trying to make. Okay, the fourth line of re or reasoning or argument or statement by, by the young earth creationist is that Jesus took Genesis literally, and so should we. Here, Turton fan attempts to say that there's a good reason to think that Genesis 1, through the law code that begins midway through Exodus, is a diachronic historical narrative. His reason for this is that Jesus takes the historical people and places as historical. This hardly proves that it should be the genre of historical narrative, however. We know that Deborah's song and Moses' song were about historical events. But should we think that their songs, which are actually type of poetry, were, were actual historical, diachronic, literal narratives because the people and places were historical? Obviously not. This response also has a kind of all-or-nothing flavor to it. It ignores the literary features of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4, specifically that make many of us say that that portion of Genesis likely isn't historical narrative. To make the argument that Turretin fan makes is to say that because the rest or a bulk of Genesis to the first half of Exodus is historical narrative, which by the way isn't a fact, there are several other genres intermingled throughout there, that the first section of Genesis must also necessarily be historical narrative. Well, even if I agreed with the fact that the rest of Genesis is historical narrative, by the way, there's prophetic, there's parable, there's poems all throughout there, it doesn't follow that Genesis 1 is. I agree that Adam and Eve and Abraham were real people, <clears throat> and Sodom and Gomorrah were real places. I am in absolute agreement with Jesus there. I could echo his exact statements. It's then a non sequitur to say that this somehow shows Genesis 1 is historical narrative. Here, I would simply say that I think Turretin fan is not quite grasping the problems with saying that Mark 10 proves that Jesus held to a young earth. Simply saying, from the beginning, as he does, here doesn't tell us how long ago that was. Merely that from the beginning of humanity, God made them male and female. That's Jesus' statement. There are no time markers here, and if one tries to push that saying too literally, then they would actually contradict themselves, because it would be literally saying 
from the beginning, that is the beginning of creation, but rather it would mean from a week after the beginning that it happened. So they already have to be already have to say, well, it's kind of a beginning-ish type of thing. The salient point seems to be that from Adam and Eve, God made humanity as male and female from the beginning of our race. Here, Turton fan takes an exception to my statement that the creation week would be the most important truth never taught again in scripture by simply begging the question that it is taught in Genesis 1. Uh, he then makes passing reference to the statement in Exodus 20, 11, which I'll address in the next objection. But you can't say it's the most important truth never taught in scripture by begging the question of Genesis 1, since Genesis 1 just is the passage that we're debating about. Okay, the fifth one, and this is the, the, the passing statement about Gen or Exodus 20, 11, uh, The fifth claim by Young Earth Creationists is that Moses bases the Sabbath regulations as the seventh day on the seven literal day structure of Genesis 1. Now, I address this a lot in my response to Steve Schramm, but I'll go through some of it here. I made a statement that Moses wrote Exodus 20, and Turretin fan correctly points out that it is a retelling what God wrote on tablets. Fair enough. But so what? Moses also wasn't there to see Genesis 1 and was writing God's word under inspiration. It seems we could make a large number of poor exegetical inferences if we try to press who the author of a text was between the human and the divine. This would break, utterly destroy, any robust doctrine of inspiration into two. Turretin fan then simply begs the question that the days of Exodus 20 were conventional days. Unless he is merely speaking of the labor days of the Israelites, that this is precisely what's being asked. So you can't beg the question of your view, you have to argue for it. Now, I may make Turretin fan's head spin in reminding him that I absolutely think that the days mentioned in Genesis 1 are meant to be understood as solar days. I think the author was clearly building Genesis 1 around a framework of solar days as the conceptual hooks to hang that, that, uh, that temple text on. I just don't think that's enough to make us read the text as a modern astronomy book or as a diachronic historical narrative. The days, I think, are being used analogically as a framework by which the narrative is hung to polemicize Egyptian polytheism and to present God as the creator and singular sovereign ruling and reigning from his celestial temple. This is why I disagree with day-age proponents who try to read millions of years into Genesis 1. I think both kinds of interpretations of the text are simply anachronistic mishandlings because the young earth creationist and the old earth creationist are both trying to read the text as a concordist, as, 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 that, that, that from the text we can get literal scientific data out of it, that we should read it as this diachronic historical narrative. They just disagree what the time markers mean. I think both of them handle the text wrong. So with that, I don't particularly care if the days of Genesis 1 and Exodus 20 are meant to convey solar days. I think what's more likely of importance is that sevenfold paradigm of six plus one, a ubiquitous structure of cultic significance throughout the ancient Near East, not just in Israel. 
This is why we see Moses bathes the Sabbath years and the year of Jubilee on the exact same paradigm of uh, that sevenfold paradigm of six plus one. And he does it with just as much ease. It's also why in the second giving of the law, we don't see the justification for the, the, the Sabbath day, for that seventh day being based on the seven days of creation. We see it based on the, the, the rest that they needed as while they were slaves in Egypt. So it's just not the case that that sevenfold paradigm, that six plus one paradigm is there because it's exactly the same as what happened in Genesis 1. Turton fan also takes a highly unusual position that the seventh day was a regular solar day. To be honest, that's a weird position. Most people grant that the seventh day is still ongoing or is, is, is a much longer day or something like that. Most young earth creationists that I know don't want to adopt such a view that the seventh day is also a literal seventh day, though some do, because not only is the seventh day missing all of the features that they argue that show a solar day, the morning and evening formula primarily, uh, uh, but that the author of Hebrews seems to think that God is still enjoying his Sabbath rest, such as in Hebrews 4, as does Jesus, who seems to make just such an argument to demonstrate why he can heal on the Sabbath in John 5:17. This is an incidental point, but to hold such a view opens Turret and Fan to problems on other texts while he tries to maintain consistency on Genesis 1. The next uh, argument or, or you know, line of reasoning given by Young Earth Creationists and Literal Debut proponents is that Yom plus morning and evening in the Hebrew always refers to a literal solar day. Okay, Turretin Fan doesn't comment here much, except that he doesn't like such arguments, though he simply asserts that, quote, the underlying point of the argument is correct, namely that the fact the verse specifies what kind of day we are talking about, end quote. As I've said elsewhere in my response to Steve Sharaman in the original article, I don't have much of a problem with the use of solar days as, as analog. But here, I'm simply pointing out that, that, that that's a poor attempt by young earth creationists to make an exegetical case for it being a historical narrative. That is, they want there to be this, this grammatical rule that every time you have yom, or the Hebrew word that's translated as day, plus the Hebrew for morning and evening, it always refers to a literal day. Well, the only time that ever happens is in Genesis 1. So you can't say grammatically in Hebrew it always means a 24-hour day, and therefore it means that in Genesis 1, if the only place we find it is in Genesis 1. You just can't beg the question that way and invent this grammatical rule that doesn't exist. So Turretin fan just doesn't really address that issue. And remember, this is about arguments used by young earth creationists to argue that Genesis 1 has to be read as literal history. Why can Turretin fan not simply admit these are bad arguments to that effect, not supported by the text or by Hebrew grammar itself? Okay, the seventh one, another, another Hebrew grammar one that's presented by uh, Young Earth Creationists and Literal Debut proponents is that yom, the word translated as day, plus an ordinal number or a cardinal number in the Hebrew always refers to a literal solar day, right? A, a ordinal number is like first, second, third, fourth. Cardinal number is one, two, three, four. Once again, 
Turton fan says he doesn't really like these kind of arguments, but says that he would say yom plus an ordinal or cardinal usually means a normal day. Again, fair enough, and I don't mind the analogical day in Genesis 1 either. But he then says that the burden of proof is on the non-literal folk to prove that it's not a literal day. Well, that's just simply false. The burden would fall on all exegetes to properly handle the text. And so anyone who wants to advance a view of what's in reference carries a burden. All of us carry a burden. The one who wants to say it's a literal day carries a burden. The one who wants to say it's an analogical day carries a burden. The one who wants to say it's a day age carries the burden. The one who wants to say it's a temple text carries the burden. We all carry an exegetical burden to demonstrate our case. We know countless terms in the Bible have normal meanings and rare meanings. This is the task of any exegete, and we cannot simply pawn it off to views that we disagree with to prove our unproven assumptions wrong. And once again, why can Turretin fan not simply admit that these just are bad arguments to that effect, and they're not supported by the text of the Hebrew grammar itself? Remember, I went through numerous examples where yom plus an ordinal or yom plus a cardinal clearly didn't mean a literal 24-hour day within the Bible itself. Okay, the last one, the last argument given by Young Earth creationists and those who advance a literal day view are that we see the use of the vav consecutive construction in the Hebrew, which is how Hebrew marks out historical narrative, and thus we should take Genesis 1 as literal history. Here, Again, Turretin Fan simply says that he doesn't like these kind of arguments that use supposed grammatical rules and, make no, and he makes no other comments. But once again, if it's a bad argument, why can't Turretin Fan simply say it's a bad argument? Uh, you know, it, it's not a good argument to defend the Young Earth creationist view and it's not supported by the text or the Hebrew grammar itself. Why can't he just come out and admit that? Again, I gave numerous examples where the Vav consecutive construction in the Hebrew, all throughout the Bible, doesn't mean a literal historical narrative. It doesn't, oftentimes it doesn't even mean a historical narrative. It really just connotes or, uh, you know, it, it just identifies Hebrew narrative, Hebrew narration. It happens in allegory. It happens in poem. It happens in epic. It happens in prophecy. It happens all over the place. You can't say because there's a vav consecutive, therefore it means literal history. Okay, all in all, I don't think the Turretin fan really was able to show any problems with any of my comments in the article, and he did nothing to advance the cause of young earth creationism or a little literal day view against what myself and others uh, have, have written or said, even other young earth creationists. Uh, and, and he can't find uh, it really any or, or respond to any of the formidable objections to the young earth creationist or literal day view positions on Genesis 1. Okay, with that said, I want to make an aside because based on, uh, based on my presentation, uh, all, you know, all the episodes that I've done here on the YouTube channel or on the podcast, all the articles I've written, um, I actually have been impressed by how many young earth creationists have have really come around to seeing Genesis 1 as a literary polemic uh, uh, presenting a temple text and who agree with me now that the text says nothing about the age of the earth. Now, they still are young earth creationists because they think the science teaches that. And that's fine. That's just outside of my realm of discipline. I just don't touch that issue. 
But I actually have been impressed by how many young earth creationists who used to hold a literal day view have actually come around and said, you know what, your view actually does seem to better fit with the text. It does seem to, be, to follow a more consistent hermeneutic. And they've really come around to, to seeing Genesis 1 along views like those of mine or Walton uh, or others, uh, even though they still are remain young earth creationists. The same with old earth creationists. I've, I've heard from a lot of old earth creationists or even theistic evolutionists who have agreed with a view like mine and come around and said, you know what, I, I, you know, I, I, do start, I do see that now in the text, even though for scientific reasons, they still might be old earth creationists or theistic evolutionists. So I am impressed actually by how many people have been open uh, and, and responding uh, well to this and engaging with a lot of these ideas. Now, again, they still might believe their view that the earth is young or old based on what they think the science shows, but they have been able to move beyond the kind of rigid literalism and, 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 and concordism that caused them so many exegetical and hermeneutical problems. As I've always said, I'm not actually objecting to any certain view of the age of the earth, nor am I advancing one. Again, I'm an agnostic with regards to the age of the earth when it comes to the science of it. I have no idea. It's just not my, my area of discipline. I just don't study it. I don't hold really any view on it. Now, if you hold a gun to my head, I might slightly lean towards one over another, and I'm not going to share that here, but it really has nothing to do with, with my case uh, for, for how we should read and understand Genesis 1. My position has always been a marked agnosticism when it comes to the issue of the age of the earth. Rather, I've been trying to handle what I think the, this ancient Near Eastern text, this biblical text, does teach and respond to some of the views of Genesis 1 and other relevant passages that I think are problematic given young earth or old earth creation accounts. So with that, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or those condemnations, please feel free to email me at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Put your comments in the comment section below here on the video. Remember, please, 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 like and subscribe, uh, share uh, the, the channel. We would love to get this content out to more uh, to more people. You can always become a sponsor of the show on Patreon uh, or uh, on, on Podbean on the on the uh, on the blog. You can click the sponsor link. Or what's better than coming by the Free Thinker Group page on Facebook? All right. So uh, we'll see you again next time for some more fun discussions dealing with. Uh, the Bible, Christianity, religion, atheism, skepticism, all that kind of fun stuff. Thank you again for joining. Good night.